Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. We are continuing our study through the book of Matthew, which right now has become a study of the Sermon on the Mount. About ten weeks ago, we started the Sermon on the Mount. We started with the introduction. We spent a week on each of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, etc. Then we talked about persecution, which was no fun at all. Last week, we talked about being salt and light, what that meant as we reflect God's glory at whatever location God has put us. So that brings us to, chapter, to uh, verse 17 of chapter 5. But before we read it, we're going to talk a little bit. If you remember, we touched on it a little bit last week, but when we started the Sermon on the Mount, we had a discussion about who he was talking to. Verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this is the vision that I have. He sits down, and his disciples are sitting right here. And at this point, there's not that many of them. There's actually only four of the named disciples. I believe there were probably others, but they're sitting right here. Then there's a larger crowd of people. Okay, they've heard his teaching, they're curious what he's doing, they want to come see him. So there's a huge multitude of people. We also commented that, once again, this is my vision, on the periphery were the people watching. We had some Sadducees over here. You remember the Sadducees? They were those religious leaders who had kind of worked out an accommodation with the Romans. Okay? I won't bother you, you don't bother me. The high priest was a Sadducee. They had learned to get along. Whatever it takes to adjust our theology, to get along with the Romans, we'll do that. So they were there. Why would they be there? Well, they were worried about who this guy, Jesus, was. I mean, you don't want some guy messing up your relationship with the Romans and causing trouble, right? You've got a mob of people. All you have to do is get them all excited, go fight Romans, and the whole system collapses. So we're going to sit here, and we're going to listen, and we're going to find out what he teaches. In addition to that, you have this group called the Pharisees. Now, we use that word Pharisee, and we think, ooh, you know, all dressed in black, the villain in every movie you've ever seen, the bad guys. But they weren't really the bad guys of the time. The people respected them. The Pharisees believed, (sighs) radical idea here, in keeping the law. They did. You go back into Jewish history. Okay, they come into the promised land. They are forever running amok, chasing the local gods. They get in trouble. Boatloads of them get carried off into captivity when the nation of Israel and Judah both collapse. They're carried off into captivity. Some flee to Egypt. Some stay in the land. The ones that stay in the land kind of intermingle with the locals in the land. You get all kinds of strange beliefs. And the Pharisees came along and said, no, we're supposed to be following the law. We are supposed to be doing what God told us to do. And this group rose up to keep the law. They were the Pharisees. The law says don't do this. We're not going to do that. And in fact, we'll make it even better than that. If the law says don't do this, we're going to add on this rule to make sure we don't get close to that rule so we make sure we don't get in trouble. 
So the people admired the Pharisees because they were, well, they were professional religious people. I mean, you know, but there's a problem. Jesus is going to spend the whole book smashing the Pharisees. I mean, he's going to go after them big time. Why? If God told them to keep the law, and the Pharisees are trying to keep the law, why wouldn't Jesus just look up and go, ah, there's my friends, the Pharisees back there. They're great guys. But there's even more of a problem. I'm an average Jewish Joe. What's an average Jewish Joe? Joseph. I'm an average Jewish guy, and I've got to go to work every day. I go to work every day. I have a family to raise. I barely scrape by, and you want me to follow all these rules? Who's got time to go through this list of 600-plus rules that you have to follow? I can't do it. So if I can't do it, how in the world am I going to make it in if I can't match up to what the Pharisees do, I'm just toast. So you know what they want to hear. You know what they want to hear, which is, you know those Pharisees? They're kind of over the top. Don't worry about them. Don't, don't bother with the Pharisees, okay? They're just zealots, and we're not going to pay any attention to them. That's what the people want to hear. Don't worry about keeping all those laws. I know you can't do that. I know you don't even have time to read all those laws. Don't bother with it. I've got another plan. That's what they want to hear. So what is Jesus going to say? Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, here it comes, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees, professional good guys. The crowd, just struggling to survive day to day. And he looks at the crowd and says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees or you are not getting into the kingdom of heaven. And you know what they do. I mean, what I would do, oh shoot, I'm doomed. I'm not going to make it. I cannot exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. But you also have to think, what are the Pharisees thinking? What do you mean? I've been working at this all my life. I've got this list of rules. I've got it down. I can do whatever it is. And you're telling me I need more? Forget the 600 rules. Give me 1,000 rules. Is that what I have to do? Is that what he is saying right here? <sighs> what happened to blessed are the poor in spirit? For theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. All we have to do is acknowledge that we can't do it and the doors of the kingdom open to us and now we're told our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. The rest of chapter 5 is going to deal with this topic. We have the general introduction in the verses that I just read. Jesus is then going to give a series of examples. He's going to talk about Murder. He's going to talk about adultery. He's going to talk about divorce, oaths, getting revenge. These are going to be the examples of what he means about your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he's going to end with a very simple verse. Maybe we shouldn't read it. It'll just spoil your holidays. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, let's have a show of hands. Let's not have a show of hands. What does this mean? We're going to talk a little bit today about the introduction. We're going to try to get into the first example just so we can see where we're going. We're going to work our way down to the conclusion in about six weeks, and then we're going to go back and touch the introduction again so we all know what we're talking about. Okay? That's where we're going. Jesus says, don't think I have come to abolish the law. I haven't done that. That is not my job, to abolish the law. Where did the law come from? If you... Look in the book of Exodus. That's where we usually start thinking about the law given to us. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, gets a bunch of other rules and regulations, comes back down. The people are rebelling. He smashes it. He goes back up. He gets the list again, comes back down. You know, don't worship other gods. Don't worship idols. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't covet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's the law. It was brought down in the, on the stone tablets from the mountain. And the Jewish people were supposed to keep it. They really were supposed to keep it. And they rarely did. If you remember two years ago, we worked through Exodus to the beginning of Joshua. And we talked about the fact that continually... God would tell them to do something, and they would go do something else. But they were supposed to keep it. In fact, if you get to the book of Deuteronomy, as they're entering the land, one group of guys stands up on this mountain and tells the people all the blessings they will get if they keep the law. And on this mountain, a group of men stood and told them all the curses that would be on them if they didn't keep the law. They were supposed to keep the law. Now, when we get to the book of Romans, we know that the law actually existed before it was written on those stone tablets because we're told that God wrote the law on our human hearts. Remember, something bad happens, and we have this sense that that's not right. Where does that sense come from? It's because God's written it on our hearts. Now, we have corrupted it. You know, it's like I've said before. My children, something happens, and one of them says, that's not fair. 
Now, where do they get the idea that things are supposed to be fair? Because they have it built into their heart that there is a right and that there is a wrong. They've just corrupted it and defined right being what I want and wrong what you want. I mean, that's how they do it. But where does that basic sense of right and wrong come from? God gave it to them. God wrote the law on the human heart. We as human beings just ignored it, ignored it, ignored it. And he said, okay, just to make sure that no one can claim ignorance, here it is. And he gave it to humanity. I wrote it on a stone tablet. You have no excuse. That's what the book of Romans teaches us. We are today without excuse. The law was given to us. We know what it means. Now, we have this long discussion. In fact, we had this discussion just this morning. What about the poor guy in Africa who's never heard? Well, it's written on the human heart. That's the first one. But secondly, let's ignore that question. You've heard. We want to ask that question in some abstract, when in the reality we've heard the word and we've ignored it. It's just an excuse. Now, it's a legitimate question, but we oftentimes use it as just an excuse. So the law was given to us for what reason? Why did God take Moses up on that mountain, give him the stone tablets? Why did he do that? Well, there's a couple of possible answers. One of them is to tell them what they had to do in order to be saved. And there are lots of people who interpret the Old Testament that way today. There's just one problem with it. They were saved before they got to that mountain. They had already been removed from captivity in Egypt. They had a covenant relationship with God before they got to that mountain. God chose them. Why? Because they were the best, they were the brightest, they were the most numerous? No. Go look at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses says, No, you're not any of those things. In fact, you're stubborn and rebellious. Kind of sound familiar. Why did he save them? Because he promised Abraham that he would. There was a promise. So when the book of Romans wants to talk about living a life of faith, who does it use as the prime example? Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That belief was enough. Well, Abraham was a perfect guy, right? Nope. We've got all kinds of sins listed for Abraham. But he was saved. Now, there's another problem, though. You go to the book of James... And he wants an example of the fact that while salvation may be of, by a work of grace and of faith, if you don't have any works, you're toast. And who does he pick as his example? Abraham. But he picked Abraham at a different point in time. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then Abraham did what God told him to do that demonstrated that his faith was real. So, why did God give the law to Moses on the mountain to give to the people? One answer is in order to show them what it took to be saved. And there are lots of people who believe that. If I can keep this list, 
I'm in. A second possibility is that he gave them that list to show them that they couldn't do it. Okay? I'm going to tell you what it takes to be right with God. Okay? Here it is. Have no other God before you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Martin Luther wrestled with that every day of his life, and he just couldn't figure out because he knew he didn't do it. Until he saw in the book of Romans that there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. So, one reason. He gave it to us to show us what we had to do to be saved. Second possibility. He gave it to us to show us we couldn't do it. But there is a third possibility. And that is he gave it to us to show us how we ought to live our lives. Not to earn our salvation, but to me it's like this. God created the universe. We've said this in here before. God created the universe so that certain things work and certain things don't work. What are the things that work? Worship God. Don't worship idols. Love your wife. Don't go chasing after other girls. Don't kill anybody. Don't covet other people's stuff because if you do that, your life is going to stink. Don't do those things. So here we have three possible answers of the law. Which one's right? Hmm. (laughs) She just said all of them. How can that be? Well, one and two go really close together. Let me just tell you, if you followed the law from the day you were born to the day you died, you will probably get into heaven. Unless you're less than a couple of milliseconds old, you've already violated a few of the laws. We're not going to have any counters up here you know, telling you how many times you violated the law. We're not even going to talk about how many times you violated the law between your house and church this morning. (laughs) The law says do these things, and we're not going to do those things. But at least on some bizarre theoretical level, if you kept the law, but you can't because you have a sin nature. But it does show us that we can't do it. Or does it show us that we can't do it? What if I got real serious about it? I mean, not just, yeah, I read it on last Sunday and I thought about it for five minutes this week. No, I got real serious about it. What if I really, really kept the law? And that's what the Pharisees set out to do. Rules with rules wrapped around them with rules wrapped around those to make sure that I could be right before God. Or at a minimum, I could show the rest of the people that I'm better than they are. I mean, that's all that really counts, right? As long as I'm on the top part of the curve, I'm golden. And that's what the Pharisees were pushing. There was a problem with that. All it was was external. All it was was looking right before the right group of people so they would think you're in. But what does God look at? 
God looks at the heart. When we talk about your righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees, there's a couple of different ways that we can look at the word exceed. Okay? There's at least two that I know of. You know, I go to a restaurant and I order a steak. Okay? Or I go to another restaurant and I order a steak. But that steak is better than that steak. It exceeds it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that there's just more of it. Right? This was an 8-ounce steak. This is a 16-ounce steak. This one exceeds that. You can go to that restaurant in Amarillo and get your 72-ounce steak. That's free if you eat it an hour. Have you eaten it? He did it. What a guy. I could feed my family with a 72-ounce steak. But that is one way of looking at exceeding, right? It's more. So you have 100 rules. I've got 200. I exceed you. He has 300. He's better than both of us. But there's a second way of looking at it. It's not quantity. It's quality. I go to the little steak place. When I was in my younger days, I used to cook at a Bonanza Steakhouse. Cheap steaks for the whole family. I don't think that was their official motto. But you know, it's a steak. But you go to Ruth Chris's, and it's a better steak. Not that I would know. I've never been. There are better in quality, and there's better in quantity. Now, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting in. Which of these two categories does it fall into? It's a different kind, a different quality of righteousness. You remember when we had the discussion about the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, and we had a long discussion about what the heart was, the center of our mind, will, and emotion, who we really are? The law, as understood by the Pharisees, was purely an external thing. It controlled my behavior in public. What God wants is a changed heart. So it's not just, I'm not going to kill anyone. This is today's lesson, if we get to it. It's not just that I'm not going to kill anyone. I'm not going to hate them. It's not just that I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to lust after another woman. I'm not even going to try to seek revenge. Instead, I'm going to give good stuff to those who do me wrong. It is taking the external law and bringing it in to the heart and making it a heart issue. That's how we're going to end up with be perfect as your heavenly father is in heaven. But how do we do that? (sighs) Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, if you're a good Jewish audience, the law and the prophets is essentially all the Old Testament. 
You know, the first half is the law, the second half are all the prophets. Yes, there's some wisdom literature thrown in the middle, but it is basically, he's saying, don't think that I have come to abolish all that you have received from the prophets. All that written, what we would call the Old Testament, don't think I've come to abolish that. And a lot of people today believe that. Good Christians believe that. Oh yeah, I don't like the Old Testament God, but I like the New Testament God. As if that somehow was a different thing than what we have. And he's telling them, don't think I've come to abolish any of that. I am not standing before you, Jesus tells them, to throw everything that you know away. Now, in one sense, if you're a scribe or a Sadducee, you'd say, okay, that's good. He's on our side. Don't think that I've come to abolish it. Rather, I have come, here it comes, are you ready to fulfill it? Now, what in the world does that mean? If I've got a law, you know, don't do this thing, we can talk about keeping the law, or we can talk about not keeping the law. And maybe we can get into a little discussion about the gray area in the middle. Okay? Those are the usual words we use to talk about this. I kept the law, or I didn't keep the law, but Jesus came to fulfill the law. What in the world does that mean? What is the scripture all about? How you and I can be made right with God. How we can be saved is the word that we use. How can we as sinful human beings enter the presence of a holy God? Here's the righteous standard of God. And even on the external level, we have trouble keeping it. And when we get into the condition of the heart that we're going to do for the next five weeks, you're going to be toast. You mean I can't even get mad at him? No, you can't get mad at him. How can we do that? How can we do that? God set up this sacrificial system in the Old Testament. What was that all about? You've sinned. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I'm going to take this sacrifice. I'm going to slit its throat. I'm going to pour the blood on the altar. And the priest is going to tell you, okay, you're okay. You're okay with God. God said this blood covers, atones for your sin. Okay, that's good. Well, for some unit of time. The problem is you've got to do it every year or every month or ever all often you think you're sinning. you just got to keep doing it. Why? Because the blood of the animal is covering the sin, but it's not changing the heart. It just isn't. It's just not doing it. And it gets to the point in the prophets where the prophets are saying, why do you waste your time with all these blood sacrifices? And you go, wait a minute, God told us to do it. Yeah, but there's no change in your heart. It's not a heart thing for you. It's just going through some external activities. But Jesus comes along and he says, I am that lamb. Remember, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What does that mean? It means that he was a human being just like you and I. 
He's also God. Let's not get confused. But he was a human being who kept every dot and tittle of the law. Did Jesus ever lust? No. Did he ever murder? No. Was he ever angry? Eh, we'll think about that one in the weeks to come. Was he ever angry because of selfish motives? No. Jesus kept the entire law from the day he was born until the day he died, and he said, it's finished. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was that perfect sacrifice, and he was the perfect high priest who says, that covers your sin forever. That is the fulfillment of the law. Everything that the law required of humanity, Jesus did, and he did it for you. Now, at this point in time, he's giving this to this audience, disciples, crowd, religious leaders. He's giving it to them. Do they understand that right now? Probably not. Probably not. What they do understand is he's not throwing the law away. He's not doing that. He's going to do something greater. He's going to keep it. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What is a dot and a tittle? I don't know. Look at that verse we just read. The next to the last word is, is. Right? What is the first letter of is? I. What's at the little top of the I that makes it an I? The dot. The jot. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one of those dots of the law of God is going to be irrelevant. The littlest, tiniest, minuscule punctuation mark is going to remain in the law of God. Don't think, I'm just going to throw it away. We've had this discussion over and over and over in here. Many of us are convinced that here's how salvation works. I come to God, I say, I've messed up. I've got a long list of sin, and God says, no, you've got an even longer list of sins. But you know what? I'm going to pretend they're not there. I'm going to put on my blinders. I'm going to look the other way. I'm just going to pretend you didn't sin. And we're good, right? We're good? You know, I've done that with my kids before. They did something wrong. I didn't want to deal with it. I pretended not to see it. It works for ostriches. Do ostriches really do that? I don't know. And that's what we think God does. He sees our sin. Eh, I don't see your sin. He ignores it and he lets us into heaven. No. No. He deals with it through, what were the songs about this morning? The blood of Christ. That's what he does. Don't think that I've come to abolish it. Until heaven and earth pass away. Question. Has heaven and earth passed away yet? 
Not that I know of. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we are talking to people that are in the kingdom of heaven, right? This is least and greatest. It's not those inside and those outside. But basically, don't go telling people that they don't have to do what God tells them to do. Okay? You may get to heaven telling people that, but you're going to be at the bottom of the pecking list. Don't tell them that the law has gone away. It hasn't gone away. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. More on that later. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Exceeds. Exceeds. Not more in quantity. You've got 100 rules. You've got 200. You're better. But different in quality. And we're going to look at the first example. We're going to get started on the first example. Okay? Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Each of these examples is going to start with that phrase. You've heard it said. Now, some people want us to believe that these traditions that he's quoting are just pharisaical laws. You know, because, well, they just made them up. Well, in this particular case, it comes straight from the Ten Commandments. God spoke this. But this is what you've been taught. He's telling them, this is what you've heard before. You have heard, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Show of hands. No, no show of hands. How many of you think that murder is a sin? Okay? We can all agree on that one. You know, there's a lot of, in today's age, a lot of them that we have discussions about, but good old-fashioned just murdering somebody, most people think that's a sin. We're all good, right? I mean, I don't know about you. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm not perfect, but I've never murdered anybody? <laughs> Have you ever heard that? I've heard it. As if somehow that's the bar. And I'm not making this up, and I've told you this story to you before. I remember listening on, to the, on the radio, and they were interviewing a drug dealer. And he said, I'm not making this up, he said, well, at least I haven't killed a large group of people before. Let's just readjust the bar, right, to whatever it is that we can. We're all in agreement that murder is wrong. You've heard this said. We're not going to dispute that. But murder is an external thing. I can pick up my club. I'm going to whack you over the head, and I'm going to kill you. What about the heart that produces the inclination to murder someone? I can stand up here with a straight face and tell you I've never murdered anybody. Okay? I never have. I shot myself one time, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that story before, but we won't go there. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Shoot. If we define brother in the most tight, small, minuscule, compact way we possibly can, 
I still haven't passed this. Because I've got one brother. I'm sure there's some point in my life that I got mad at him. Well, I know that I did. Why has he gone from murder to anger? Because murder is the external and anger is the condition of the heart that produces it. Now, probably next week, if not the week after next, we will have a discussion when we're talking about adultery versus lust and etc. You know, well, since I'm already mad at you, I might as well shoot you because it's the same thing, right? <laughs> no. There are human consequences of sin. We know that. We know there are human consequences of sin. But we also know that unlike me, God can see your heart. I can't judge your heart. All I can do is look at your external behavior. But God can look at the heart. He knows what drove that external action. So in God's economy, in his perspective, the condition of the heart is where it begins, where the rebellion of God against God, where the sin begins. And he's interested in what's the condition of your heart. Now, don't say, well, then I'll go ahead and murder somebody anyway because I'm mad at them. No, we'll deal with that more next week. External, internal. Looks good to other people, I've got a chance of keeping it. People can't see it, but God can see it. And God says, this is where it starts. This is where sin really begins. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to take that set of Old Testament laws and he's going to demonstrate, not with all of them, but with enough examples to get your attention, he's going to demonstrate that what the intent was, was that those laws would change your heart, but those laws can't do it. Only Jesus can. How do we change our heart? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. All those things that we've been talking about. He's telling them that that external following of a set of rules, even if it's a good set of rules, that has no change in your heart is not going to get you into heaven. It's just not going to do it. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. Huh. We see a progression here. I am angry at you. I utter some just oath at you. In fact, I think in the King James it says raka. You know, raka is one of those words that they don't even bother trying to translate. It's just kind of an insult. You know, just raka. You just, Ugh. Today we would substitute that with some cuss word of some sort. You know, not only am I angry at you, I demonstrate that anger with just some lashing out at you. And each of this, these progressions produces, in God's eyes, greater judgment. So we have anger. 
We have that anger being vocalized. And at the end of it, we just have me looking at you and saying, you're a fool. Why? What, what's so bad about that? Well, go back to the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. Go back to the book of Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. When I tell you that you're a fool, what am I saying about you? Here's the circle of people who are in, and you're out there. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying you are outside of a covenant relationship with God. You are a fool. Now, it's interesting because we've actually had some discussions in other sections of this church. If I read the book of Proverbs, there's lots of things that says the fool does this, the fool doesn't do this, the fool... And sometimes we have a tendency to say to somebody who's doing those things, you're a fool. Okay? Well, is that a violation of this commandment right here to not call someone a fool? Well, maybe. If I'm pointing out specific behavior and I'm quoting the book of Proverbs to say, you did that, that's what fools are doing, you're acting like a fool... Okay, I can understand that as being okay. What it's talking about here, from the progression of anger to vocalized anger to calling someone a fool, is I am making judgment on your eternal soul. And we're not supposed to do that. Particularly not in anger. There's an out? No, there's not. Oh, you have foolish ways? Oh, that's not the one I thought you were going to give me. There's another out. Some of your translations, I don't know, may say what? If you are angry at someone without cause. Okay? Some of them actually say that, right? So, why did they put that in there? Well, first off, as far as we know, it's not in the original. It is probably one of those phrases that somebody put in as a commentary. Now, it happens to probably be true. Okay? It does. Why? Because we look at Jesus. Jesus enters the temple. Jesus is really ticked off that they are selling things. They have turned it into a marketplace. And he gets ticked off. He gets his whip and he cleans house. Literally. So there must be an, a, a, a chance, at least, to be angry and it be okay. Well, there is, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about anger where you want to kill somebody. He's talking about anger that you want to insult them. He's talking about there is a discussion, don't let the sun go down on your wrath and that kind of thing. We can talk about that at length. There is a place for righteous anger. But let me let you in on a little secret. Most of your anger doesn't fit into that category. Maybe I should broaden that. None of your anger fits into that category. I've been angry a lot in my life. To the best of my knowledge, I've never been angry for a righteous cause. I get angry because I didn't get my way. Why was Cain angry at Abel because he was a righteous person, Cain? No, Abel was, but not 
He was angry because God said nice things about Abel and he didn't say nice things about Cain and Cain took him out into the field and killed him. But what happened before he killed him? He was mad at him, he vocalized that, and he viewed Abel as being outside the covenant. And once you're outside the covenant, I can slit your throat every day. What is the difference? The Pharisees had never murdered anyone, probably. I have never murdered anyone, definitely, or at least to my knowledge. Okay? I haven't done that. But that's just the external. And Jesus is going to spend all the rest of chapter 5 taking the external activity and moving it to the condition of the heart. Now, is he just doing this to beat you over the head? Is he really, I mean, is that the purpose of doing this? You know, you thought it was bad enough that you couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, and now Jesus is going to take the Ten Commandments, and he's just going to raise them up two more notches. I mean, there's no way. Oh, woe is me. No. If you've been following this progression, you're already past that point, right? Because blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge they can't do it. What we need to understand is the condition of the heart is what matters in the eyes of God. Then how do we change that? Prayer, seeking the Holy Spirit, hungering and thirst after righteousness, meekness, the scripture, all of those spiritual disciplines that the scripture tells us to follow. Why is he doing this? Because he doesn't want you to be a Pharisee and think that you're doing okay even though you're mad as you can be at those around you. I mean, people in churches have fights, emotional fights, physical fights, weapon fights. I mean, fights all the time. Where does that come from? The human heart. God does not want us to be content with a mere external following of the law. He wants us to understand that our hearts need to be transformed. This is not a club to beat you over the head. It is God telling you, what is important. But then, and here's the cool thing, we had this discussion. What did the audience re hearing this on day one understand? I'm not sure how much they did. But we're beyond that. We understand that God has promised to believers the Holy Spirit to do all of these things in the human heart. But when we begin to believe that all we're interested in is the external behavior, as long as I look good to you, I'm okay, then I have become a Pharisee. And Jesus looks at them and says, you are whitewashed tombs. You go to the cemetery over here, there's the mausoleum. It's made out of fabulous material. It looks good. It has been painted. It has got nice flowers around it. It really looks good. And inside of it, what's there? Death. And that's what Jesus says the Pharisees are. 
And the Pharisees are the same today. But when I acknowledge that it is a condition of the heart and I allow the Holy Spirit to work in my heart, then I can begin. Then I can only begin to get to verse 48 about being perfect. We're going to have a lot to say about that. But we're going to work our way up to it. One verse at a time. So, next week we'll finish off being angry and we'll start in on good old-fashioned adultery. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you came to change our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, that we would acknowledge a need for not just a change in our behavior, but a change in our heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.